We've been in the book of Mark. I don't know if you know this, but uh, as of the end of last year, we've basically covered half of the book of Mark. And uh, you can pat yourself on the back, you can fist pump the person next to you, elbow them, do whatever you need to do to celebrate that we're tracking through the scriptures. We as a church love to track through scripture and to let the scriptures speak to us one verse, one chapter at a time. And it's just a powerful way to do life. You, you read your Bible one passage at a time and you keep going through and it's amazing how God times things just perfectly. And uh, I remember a friend once telling me, if you, uh, if you don't know the context, you run the risk of being conned by the text. If you don't know the context, you run the risk of being conned by the text. So you must always read the scriptures and go, what is the context? What's actually happening? And in the book of Mark, he really has two main agendas that most agree. He's got these two questions that he continuously keeps asking. The one question is, um, who is he? Who is this man, Jesus? And he spends the first eight chapters answering, who is Jesus? And the last time we preached on Mark, we got to that beautiful climax moment where Peter stands up, he looks at Jesus, and he goes, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus goes, Chaching, it's happening. They're getting it. It took me eight chapters and many months and lots of time and lots of frustrating conversations, but they're getting it. Their eyes are opening. And Peter looks at him, he goes, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it's almost like the climax of the first half of that, uh, of the book of Mark, happens in that moment. That's the first question that Mark is asking Who is this man? And now for the second half, he answers this question. And what is he doing? What is he up to? What's the purpose of this Messiah? What's going on in his life and why is he here? And the main answer to that question is to go to the cross. He's here for one single purpose because he is destined to go to the cross. The cross is his purpose. And so we've just picked up off of this crescendo moment where Peter has said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, and we're now looking at the next part of Mark where he now begins to explain what is he up to? What is this Jesus all about and what's his purpose? And so we're going to read in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. If you've got your Bibles, open with me and we will read. And hey, why not make it a habit to try bring your Bible to church? It's less distracting. I've struggled with phone distraction of late. You open it to do one thing and 30 minutes later you're doing five other things and you never did the thing that you really wanted to do. And it's similar with a Bible. Get a hard copy Bible, start reading it, and your focus levels and your joy levels in Scripture will probably increase exponentially. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Ready to go? Ready to go? That's better. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not, do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit 
their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the angels. This is God's word. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that for thousands of years you have preserved that which we need to know you, to understand you, to enjoy you, to be able to follow you. We're a community of people who want to follow you well, who want to know your word better, who want to be the kinds of people who are salt and light, who are a city on a hill, who live in a way that because we follow you, we are distinct and different in a way that splashes love into the world. We're strong and yet gentle. We're filled with the fruits of the Spirit, of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. We understand your grace and we're caught up in the love that you have for us. That's who we are and that's who we want to become more of. In your name, Jesus, coach us to do that today with the help of your Spirit. Amen. Wow, so this is a passage. This is a real passage. We're, a, we're in a heavy-hitting passage because we're hearing some pretty strong words. Now, I don't know if you picked up some pretty shocking things. I, I see four shocking moments in this encounter. The, the first shocking moment that I pick up is when Jesus pronounces his personal death and resurrection. Did you pick that up? He starts teaching that the Son of Man must die and rise again. Did you pick that up? I mean, what an interesting thing to start teaching your disciples. That's shocking. If you had somebody you're hanging out with who's pretty prominent and, and important, and then he says, you know that I'm going to die and rise again sometime. That's pretty shocking. He starts introducing his disciples to a very shocking concept. <laughs> that doesn't stop with the shock there, because the next shocking thing is that Peter comes and he rebukes him. Hey, hey, son of God, the one I just said is the Messiah. Not so much. That teaching, we're going to have to sideline that one. It's not going to work for me, says Peter. That's shocking thing number two. Shocking thing number three is that Jesus looks at him, points a finger, and rebukes him publicly. So much for that concept of, you know, applaud in public and then correct in private. Not so for Jesus. He corrects Peter in front of everyone and says, no, bro, that's not the way it is. Get behind me. Satan, this is strong language. It's a shocking text. And then the fourth shocking thing is the teaching that he carries on with. He carries on and he says, do you know what it's going to be like to follow me? It's going to be like denying yourself. It's going to be like picking up a cross and following me. And anyone in the Roman world who was living in that time knew exactly what it meant to pick up a cross. Because it was a standard practice for anyone who was going to be crucified that you would carry the crossbeam. You would carry the horizontal all the way. So to pick up your cross meant you were heading towards some sort of death. This is a shocking encounter. Four really shocking things happening repeatedly over and over in this crazy thing. Now the one I want to focus in on, it's kind of got me giggling a little, is this Peter moment. So Jesus gives this teaching, and he says, hey, the Son of Man must die, and three days later he will rise again. Now picture this. He's teaching his disciples, and Peter, I mean, don't you love Peter? Every crowd needs a Peter. Every family's probably got a Peter. Every classroom's got a Peter. Every business has a Peter. He's the guy who wears his heart on his sleeve. He doesn't hold back. He shares it just like it is, and he, pull, he goes up to Jesus, and he says, can we chat? That stuff you just shared. Not so much. 
I think we're going to have to just adjust that, Jesus. You are not going to die. I've just told you you're the Messiah, and you agreed with me. This whole concept of you dying, no, 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 no. Not okay, Jesus. We've got plans. Peter was a good Jewish man. He knew that the Messiah was to come, and the Messiah was going to do radical stuff. But here's the thing. You see, as a good Jewish man in that Jewish world, there was a kind of stereotyped expectation of what this Messiah would look like and the timeline in which he would do things. And the expectation was simply this, that the Messiah would come, and he would come in the line of David and be like another David. He would also be like another Moses. He'd be a David kind of king who would be seated on the throne and would rule Israel from that time, and they would be a blessing to the nations because he redeems Israel in the moment. He'd be a Moses-like person who would take them out of the oppressive rulers like Rome, and he would put them up, and he would show the world that God is king, and there would be some sort of political experience. And so Peter, like a good Jewish man, pulls Jesus aside and says, death ain't your lot. A throne, a kingdom on this earth is your lot. You better start rethinking what you're teaching, buddy. How crazy is that? He starts to correct Jesus. Now, I heard this lovely quote that I think could be quite helpful. Because Peter had some problems, right? I mean, to to think that you can correct the Messiah. There's something going on, the creator of the world, and you pull him aside and you go, hey, bud, let's talk this thing through. Listen to what I read recently. The problem wasn't that Peter had competing loyalties, but that he had incompatible ideologies. You see, Peter was loyal to Jesus. He was always going to be loyal. The problem was that he had the whole misunderstanding of how this stuff was going to work out. He had a picture of how life should work. He knew that he was going to, in a sense, uh, become the the Messiah's buddy. He would walk closely by him, and he'd be his two IC, and they'd take over the world together, and they'd sip their favorite drink late in life and say, look what we have accomplished, and they'd look over the empire that was Peter's ideal. And each of us have a, an ideal for the way we think life should work, the kind of expectations that we have for life and the way that the kingdom of God should work through our lives, whether it's healthy uh, kids, whether it's suffering fr- uh, free from suffering in our lives, whether it's the, the, the kind of job we think we're entitled to and the kind of fulfillment we should get from our jobs, whether it's the kind of relationships and, and the ease with which relationships should work in our marriage or our parenting or our friendship circles or whatever it may be, we've got these ideals. We've got ideals around how we think politics should work. We've got these ideals around how people should behave, our neighbors should behave. How We've got these ideals that we set up. They're called ideologies. They're kind of worldviews that we set up and we say, this is how the world should work. This is how I need my life to work. And you know what? Most of us are a lot like Peter in that if we're a follower of Jesus, we go, I'm loyal to you, Jesus, all the way. But the problem sometimes is that our ideologies are incompatible with Jesus and his ideals for our life. And so Jesus has this moment where he needs to begin to teach people like Peter that actually there are going to be things in our lives that are going to come up and they're going to clash. We're going to have difficult relationships and we're going to start to go, God, why is it working like that? 
We're going to have difficulties in our jobs. Man, I've had lots of conversations. Maybe we've lost jobs. And, and suddenly we realize that actually we had put our faith connected to our success at work. And the moment that that all started crumbling, so too did our faith. Or, or maybe our marriage is starting to take massive hits. And, and so we start to rethink our faith. Whatever it may be, there's this radical connection sometimes between our ideologies and our faith. And sometimes the little inner Peter inside of us wants to pop out and have a little word with Jesus. I think we've all got an inner Peter who wants to have a word with Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, we spoke about this. Remember, white picket fence, couple of kids, all happy, never disobey me. Remember, they're really sweet. They they, they just always do what I say. Remember that thing? Remember the the, the marriage relationship we said we were going to get? If I follow you, you said we'd never argue. We'd just always get on. Remember the job you said you could give me and it would always be great and the income would keep going and, you know, compound interest would just keep serving me and, and, you know, capitalism would be the end game for us and we'd be happy. And suddenly a world comes crashing down and your ideologies are going, oh, how do I reconcile this? This is what's going on in the life of Peter. It's what's going to happen in every follower of Jesus' life. And I want to suggest just two things today, just two simple things. The first one is this, is that we should expect sacrifice and self-denial as followers of Jesus. Expect sacrifice and self-denial if you're a follower of Jesus. Anticipate it. Jesus anticipates it for you. Think about it. He says, if anyone wants to be my disciple, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He doesn't go, it might happen. He's going, it will happen. Maybe the spoiler alert is that there is some good news in my second point. But you have to push your way through point one if you really want to enjoy point two. If you try bypass this teaching of Jesus, you end up doing what Peter does all your life, and you keep pulling Jesus aside and going, hey, no, 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 no. I'm going to squeeze you into my shape. I'm going to squeeze you into my ideologies. And eventually, you distort Jesus into someone that is not Jesus at all. And then what happens is is you don't get the love of the creator and the power of his love moving into your life because you actually aren't with him. You're with a figment of your imagination. You're with a made-up expression of the Christian faith that you call Christianity, but there's no Christ at the center of it. If Jesus never challenges your worldview, if Jesus never calls you to sacrifice, if Jesus never calls you to deny your personal longings or passions or desires or whatever else, then you might be serving a figment of your imagination, but you might not be walking with Jesus because that's what he promises. Anyone, that's a big one, whoever, anyone can come, but you know that you're going to have to have some moments of self-denial. How exciting, right? Yay! (laughs) So what might denying self look like in different times in our lives? Denying possibly our individual agendas, the things that we want, our outcomes. Sometimes we just can't have them. Or our social agenda, or our national political agenda, or our ideological agenda. Sometimes we just need to put it aside to deny self. Sometimes it's giving up the right to dictate exactly what we say should be done rightly and wrongly. Sometimes as an outcome of this, we have to deny ourselves certain things, like the ability to say certain things. 
but we have to deny ourselves, or the ability to hold on and keep certain things, but we deny ourselves and we let them go. The ability to pursue certain things, but we deny ourselves and we go the other way. If you've been a follower of Jesus for more than just a day, you've already experienced this. You know what it's like. Here's some things that Jesus is not saying when it comes to denying self. He's not saying, seek persecution. Hey, go after it. Try find yourself some battles. Get some people to really dislike you. That's going to be a proof that you're a follower. Don't, don't seek it. He's also not saying, stir up strife and ruffle feathers. You know, Drop one of those really contentious Facebook profile notes and just throw a storm out and then leave it and get some persecution for yourself. Not saying that. He's not also saying, if it's not hard, it's not God. Sometimes life isn't hard, (laughs) and praise God for that. Sometimes life goes quite well, and we can thank him for that. Sometimes your kids do obey you, and they do listen, and they do take the hand of the kids' rock person, and they walk out, and they smile at you as they walk, and you just go, cha-ching, it's working. But sometimes they grab onto your leg, and they claw on, and you want to do something that's ungodly, and you know that you've got to deny yourself and go, okay. How can I help you? And what am I going to do to nurture you towards courage? Whatever it is, we've got these moments where we're always needing to deny ourselves to become more like Jesus. And also, Jesus doesn't have in mind all hardships. This is also really crucial. There are some hardships that will happen to everyone. Sickness and death is going to happen. Sometimes Jesus heals us from sickness and death, but they do happen, and they happen to everyone. Or or some hardships that come from our own sin or our own stupidity. Hey, that happens, right? We do dumb stuff, and we bear the consequences of it. That isn't what Jesus has in mind. You know, bearing your cross when you make bad decisions, uh, that's just bad decisions. Should we just rest in that one for a while? We're not meant to be intentionally bringing hardship into our lives because we think it's godly. There's an ancient group of people called the ascetics who would try to make their lives difficult. They would whip themselves and put themselves in very difficult circumstances to try to attain a, a greater sense of closeness to God and godliness. We're not calling that out of, and that's not what Jesus is speaking about here. He's talking about the hardships we face as a result of identifying with Jesus being about his mission and his purpose, wanting to be close to him, wanting to become like him, wanting to live on mission for him. That's what he's talking about here. He's saying, if you want to follow me, become like me, live close to me, and love the world like I love the world, then you need to understand that trouble and difficulty and self-denial will come your way. It's going to look like saying no to that relationship with the person, even though you want it. God might be saying, my child, I've got something better for you. It's going to look like giving up some Wednesday nights to commit to being with your spiritual family, even though Netflix is so much easier. It's going to look like being generous with your finances, even though it's so much nicer to hold on to them. It's going to look like saying no to that job or not getting that promotion or telling people what you really believe when they ask you or being mocked for your narrow-mindedness or the very latest catchphrase, being called a bigot when you simply stand for something. 1 Peter 2 verse 12 says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my heroes of the faith, managed to do some incredible things through World War II. And um, he was imprisoned by the Nazis and was eventually executed. And days before the end of the Second World War, he said this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And whether it is a physical death because of our profession of faith, that seems unlikely in South Africa in our present day, or whether it is multiple deaths, many little denials of self over and over and over so that we can find and follow Jesus more and more effectively, the point is, is there will be regular journeys of self-denial. What's the bottom line? For some, it may be literal death, but for most, probably not. For all, there will be multiple deaths of preferential outcomes, that we want things our way, wanting to stay in control, desires for how God must act, desires for our ideal, and God saying, come aside, Peter, the little Peter inside of us, and he gives us a pep talk, and he says, get behind me, I've got something better. And that kind of gets me to my second point, is that actually, to deny self is to actually experience a whole new and better life. To deny self, if we could go to the next slide, is to produce life to the full. To live a life of sacrifice and self-denial is to produce in you an experience of life and life to the full. It's the paradox of, of the Christian gospel. It's the paradox of Jesus' very own life in that in his death, he brought us life. It's beautiful. It takes a, a real spiritual eyes to see it sometimes. You wake up most, most mornings, you go like, really? And as you submerge yourself in God and, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, you go, yeah, there is no other way than the way of Jesus in that his death brought us life. And his resurrection is the beautiful proof of that life. Think of verse 35. It says, forever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? This is strong language. I can feel the heart of Jesus in here. And this is the same Jesus who in Matthew chapter 11 says, Hey, all of you who are weary and, and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. Isn't that difficult to work out? I mean, you've got this Jesus who calls disciples to him, and he says, if you're tired, if you're burdened, come to me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. He's got this tender mother hen feel about him. You just want to cuddle up to Jesus. And then it's the same Jesus who says, but if you want to follow me, you're going to need to lose your life. If you want to save it, you've got to lose it. Are those even compatible? Can they work together? In my opinion, absolutely. It's the only way to a full life. It's the only way to the life that you always dream of. The life that is happy to be out of control is the life that is happy to cling on to Jesus. The life that is truly free is the life that has let the truly good God take full control of everything. But that requires daily, multiple self-denials. Deaths to self. Letting go of the reins of control. Anyone who has any money in their bank balance knows how hard it is 
to let go of control, to want to have control over everything, to want to see themselves as the provider. Anyone who's got kids knows what it's like to want to control the outcome of their behavior, their lives, and to micromanage them into who you want them to become. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you need to first and foremost understand you don't have control. And it's the first and most powerful death to self you will ever die. Tim Keller calls this the freedom of self-forgetfulness. You suddenly realize that you're not the most important person and that God thinks you're very important and that he died for you. And each time you relinquish control and you let him be in control, you let him love you. And as you let him love you, you get this beautiful, joyful experience of freedom. That word, save, he says, for uh, whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Comes from the word sudzu. We often say sozo in South Africa. But it's sudzu. It's a, it's a beautiful word that describes salvation. But, but we think of salvation, we just think, you know, get to heaven when you die. That's often the, the Christian understanding. It's very simplistic, which is not entirely wrong. It just misses out the whole part of life before you die. The passion that Jesus has for you and I to truly live fully alive. And to get that kind of salvation is to let Jesus to be in control of every aspect of our lives and to love us in every part of our lives, which feels like a mini death over and over again because we love control. And we love to have our way. And we have had these ideologies and these systems set up in our lives. And we knew exactly where we were going from the age of 10. We knew where we were heading. And we need to sometimes pull Jesus aside and say, Jesus, you know where I'm heading. And he goes, I do know where you're heading and it's not there. Feels like a death. Sometimes it's real pain. Sometimes it's minor tweaks. Sometimes it's something in between. I don't know what it is for you. I know what it's been for me in the last while. I know what it's felt like in, in, in lockdown trying to lead and love a church and you just find yourself battered around by feelings of guilt and not doing it right or not doing enough or trying your best and, and then being out of control and needing to continuously go, God, can you love me in this? Can you love us through this? And letting go. And trusting him, denying self, and simply letting him be God to us. If you want that sudzu, that whole life healing, you want that full experience of his love, you're going to need to let him have full leadership in every aspect of your life. Where's your little inner Peter emerging? I've sat with a lot of Guys, particularly over the last while, and particularly people who've struggled through COVID, the massive pressures on finances and businesses has been immense. And some of the patterns I've picked up as the tough uh, pressure comes on is this, is that people tend to work harder because their mind says, and they are actually said it with their words, money equals happiness and money equals survival. Now that sounds like, yeah, why not? It kind of does. But not in Jesus' worldview. Money doesn't equal happiness, and it doesn't equal survival. Jesus equals happiness, and Jesus makes us survive. He looks after the birds of the field, and he looks after the, 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 the uh, flowers. He clothes them. How much more will he clothe you? But that's a death to self when you are working 11 hours a day to try to provide for your family. 
That is immensely difficult to go, I'm actually going to work eight hours because I'm costing, I'm paying another price. You see, Jesus goes on and he says, you know what? You could exchange your soul. You could die a way worse death than the one of trusting me. It's the death of holding on to control, working 13 hours a day, costing your relationships with your family or your kids or whatever else, or your personal sexual purity, whatever else it may be, to try to make things work, but actually your soul is dying because you haven't let Jesus love you. Now, I don't want to dishonor anyone who's working long hours to love and care for their children and families. We respect you. But whatever it may be in our different seasons in life, we need to realize that Jesus calls us to him, to trust him and all his words. And that's probably my most important point, is that if you don't know Jesus, and you don't know his teachings, and you're not submerged in his life and his teachings in scripture, then you can't be challenged. (laughs) Then you simply just make him up each day. If we're not reading the scriptures with the help of the Holy Spirit, and waking up each morning and saying, Jesus, would you speak to me? I'd love some encouragement because I need power from your Holy Spirit to just know that I'm a child of yours. But also, if you would... And you need to, to just bring a mini death to some part of myself that will help me live properly, then I'm open to that. And each morning as you go through the scriptures, you you see him more clearly and he calls us and he generally says, keep going, boy, I love you. But sometimes he says, but that, let's tweak it. Let's change it. Sometimes it feels like heart surgery. Sometimes it feels like a little gentle push in a different direction. But you've got to anticipate it. We've got to expect it. We've got to almost hope for it because that means we're facing the real Jesus. We're experiencing his real love. Three types of belief that all of us have. This is my closing thought. We've got public belief. Public belief is what we tell people we believe. I believe in this. Then there's private belief. Private belief is what we tell ourselves we believe. We tell ourselves we believe something. Then there's core belief which is what we actually believe. (laughs) And what we actually believe gets revealed when the pressure's on, when life is tough, and suddenly we get uh, faced with a situation that clashes with our ideals, with our core beliefs. It's at that point that Jesus calls us to work on self-denial, to trust him, to go where he's taking us. I know I can feel it right now, your, your life story is popping up into your life. For some of you, it's your, it's your personal sexuality. For others, it's your finances. For others, it's your marriages. For others, it's, it's, it's the situations at work, and you know what you need to do because it's popping up by the, with the help of the Holy Spirit. It's a core belief that's being clashed with. Do I survive in my job, or do I have to I say what I need to say? Do I reject breaking the rules here? You've got it. It's happening right now. We live this stuff. Denying self is not some theory you learn at church. It has rubber hits the road in our lives. But there's joy. There's real life that comes from it. Greg shared this beautiful passage out of um, Isaiah 53. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Isaiah 53. Out of the anguish of his soul... He shall see and be satisfied. It's in, in suffering that satisfaction often comes. We want resurrection, but we don't always want the death. Jesus calls us to walk with him through these many deaths and pop out on the other side, 
into an empty tomb. I wonder today whether there is a real one already or you're just getting prepared for some many ones in the times to come. I don't know. But I do know that if we walk with him through the cross, through our own many self-denials, through our many deaths, there is resurrection on the other side. And then there is an experience of Sozo. There's an experience of the joy and the life that comes with following him. Let's pray. Jesus, you are immensely good. You're beautifully kind. You're the one who calls us to yourself and says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest for your soul. I don't think there's a time in history where human beings need rest for their souls more than now. And yet for so many of us, we stay on the hamster wheels of social media, financial survival, news kind of addictions, relational uh, messiness, not bringing clear closure by faith, trusting you that, that you are in charge, that you do love us. And this morning we come to you knowing that there is life on the other side of every little self-denial. Every death to self moment, there is life that will emerge. I want to ask you in the quiet of your own heart to just make clear confessions to Jesus this morning. Maybe for some it's your first time even praying in a long time. Maybe it's your first time ever coming to trust Jesus. Don't pray a fancy prayer. Just say, Jesus, I want to trust you and follow you. Just say it under your breath. I want to trust you. I want to follow you. I want to be done with a life of trying to be in control. Letting my own feelings and, 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 and sinful desires take charge. I want you to be in charge. Just pray that prayer in any which way and then hold on to him. And I promise he'll hold on much more tightly to you. For others, you have clear scenarios popping into your head as I speak. And you need to draw a line in the sand. For some, it's just addiction. You can't stop doing certain things. And today's your day to ask for help. Today's your day to get some healing. Today's your day to say, yes, Jesus, I trust you. And in trusting you, I am going to ask others for support, for strength, for help. I'm not going this alone. For others, it's financial uh, compromise. Maybe you're holding on to more money than you should be, and you ought to be more generous to those around you. For others, it's, it's compromise in that you need to stand up. Can't keep doing that to the tax man. For others, you know exactly what it is, because the beauty and the work of the Holy Spirit has done all the work already for me. You just need to say yes to Jesus. And repent is what the scriptures say. Turn away from that way and trust him with a whole new life. Let him become your ideology for life. His love, his purpose, his mission. We're going to sing a song. Tashis is here, is that right? We're just going to sing a song. And whilst we do that, I wonder if you just stay in an attitude of worship. Just stay in an attitude of relinquish. Just saying yes to Jesus. Just trusting him. We need his help. 
but we also know he loves us. The gospel is the story of a good God who gives his life so that our suffering isn't the final suffering. Our suffering is what leads to ultimate life, but it's his final suffering that led to ultimate and beautiful life. Won't you trust Jesus that he loves you enough to die for you? that he's coming to restore all things and that in the interim you walk with him and you invite his help and his Holy Spirit to do that. Pray that we would sing this song thoughtfully, carefully, earnestly and honestly with Jesus. Imagine he's right near you, chatting face to face, caring for your life. Let him care for you. Let him bring you into a greater experience of sudzu. Sozo, life. Let's sing together.